Charlie. Mark, one Charlie. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm full of optimism. Einstein's theory of relativity. We're still seeing it quite well through that haze. T-minus 37 seconds. Fight is growing. E equals MC. That all men are created about the future innovations and growing strength in the air. This is Finding Your Frequency with your hosts, Jeff Spinard and Ryan Treasure. It's time to speak up, share your voice, and hear from the thought leaders. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful Finding Your Frequency Friday. I appreciate everybody tuning in to the program. You're listening to us right here on the one and only VoiceAmerica.com Variety Channel. And we got a great show for you guys today. Uh, you know, we, we've historically been talking about uh, leadership and, you know, uh, the, the dynamic workforce changes and data centers and all these different things that are kind of powering our, our daily lives, our daily changes in life and things. And we've had some we had some great conversations last week. Uh, we talked to Michael Peachy uh, about how leaders uh, need to adapt to support new hybrid workforces. Uh, and, you know, that was a really good show. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, go back, check, test, check a listen, make sure you give us a nice review on that. And of course, you can always reach the show info at voiceamerica.com. If you have some uh, content that you want us to get out there, we really appreciate all the listener feedback. You guys are awesome. So today we're going to talk about some really interesting stuff. I know you guys know how much I love blockchain, right? I'm, I'm such a crypto nerd. Um, you know, we, we had a show earlier this year where we had the CEO of Bumblebee Tuna on, which was really cool. And uh, they were talking about how they're leveraging blockchain technology to track on a, on a ledger all of their shipments and all of their boats and all of their everything all across the world, uh, which was really interesting. And so uh, kind of take another twist on blockchain and innovation uh, around a company called Map Collective. And today we're going to have on Tara Gupta. She's a climate activist, research-based artist, social entrepreneur, and founder and CEO of Map Collective. And she's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design. And I got to give a big shout out to Jeff Spinard. He's from Rhode Island. He's there currently right now. It's the reason why he's not on the show with us today. Uh, and she also went to Georgetown University uh, McDonough School of Business. Her background ranges from scientific research to system design and green urbanism. Gupta has been uh, developing solid climate solutions since 2014 and working creatively through film, community design, agricultural, social design, real estate, and technology. Wow, that is a mouthful and a whole lot of stuff. I bet you are a very busy woman. And uh, throughout her diligent work in climate change awareness, Gupta founded the company Map Collective, which is uh, uses data to track carbon footprints. That is super awesome. So I want to welcome Tara Go to the show. Tara, thank you for joining us. Hi, it's lovely to be here. So uh, you know you're 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 going to the the Rhode Island School of Design. You know you're learning all about design, and you you're you're passionate about climate and you know green living and all that kind of stuff. Seem like a very young person. So, where at what point did you go? Hmm. Let me kind of shift gears from this kind of idea of design work. And when did you get this idea of uh, the Map Collective? And kind of just kind of set the tone for us of uh, you know how did Tara Gupta end up where she is, and how did you find your frequency? Because uh, I think I think there's an interesting story to be to be told. Yeah, and I, I love to. I I have to say, like, I love the idea of finding your frequency as just a metaphor for also uh, understanding really where where your path is in life and really understanding how to play off your passions. So that's definitely what I did with Map Collective. Map Collective is definitely something that was born out of just the desire to help the earth, but also my own personal experiences, uh, just going through life. And so, uh, what happened for me actually was that I I developed a certain lens on the world through chronic illness and through understanding how you need to manage systems. And that made me into a very systems-oriented thinker. That coupled with design school, uh, especially Rhode Island School of Design, which is really, uh, I have to say, I've, I've had some really amazing professors who are with me to this day uh, through both Map Collective Inc., the company, and we also have a sister organization we're starting up, which is the foundation. Uh, and I have some amazing professors that have stayed with me from that school, actually, and who inspired the or original idea for Map Collective Inc. 
So while learning about the system of Earth and learning about how it's balanced, but the fact that there is no real visualization there or data there as an artist and designer, I was really at a loss. And so I thought, you know, we really do have to have some sort of dashboard that that gamifies this, that allows us to see not only these individual footprints that you're you're really seeing, okay, we're gonna we're gonna have net zero for a company itself, but we're also looking at that larger system. We're looking at how much carbon can can the world really manage and in what sense? How do we balance those systems and maintain that health of this large organism that we're all part of? Wow, large organism is an understatement. It's like the, you know, uh uh, it's the it's the life sustaining component for what seven point seven billion people, right? Uh, yeah. So I think it's really important that you know we we all take a, a vested interest in in taking care of Mother Nature. And you know I'm I'm a I'm a father of a of a young daughter. My daughter's about to turn eight, and it's kind of like you know when when I think about it for myself, it's it's like I really want to leave something behind that is um, you know available for her, so she's not living in a world of struggle and adversity and having to deal with, you know, the last, you know, let's say 200 years of industrial uh, changes within, uh, you know, the, within, within the world. It's, so it's definitely something that's extremely important. And I like what you're doing with Map Collective too. It reminds me of an episode we did um, on the 30th of July with a guy named Kirk Marple. And um, he created a company called Unstruck Data, right? And what they're doing with their stuff is they're, um, they're, they're primarily doing this for the film industry currently. Um, however, the implications of what they're doing are far reaching kind of like what you guys are doing but they're they're aggregating metadata and then visualizing the metadata so you can kind of actually see what's going on right rather than having you know hey here's a giant you know csv <laughs> spreadsheet document of data or you know um, and being able to actually put it all into dashboards to visualize it so that sounds kind of similar to what you guys are doing um, with interactive visualization so people can clearly see and comprehend you know the risks and and what's going on with the climate issues I think it's interesting you mentioned that just because uh, I actually was a film major in undergrad and I, I do, I, I really think that a lot of this imagery or the desire for this type of imagery comes from the film world. I think that so much of it is is richly integrated into film history when you think about yeah. the dashboards that exist or uh, <laughs> sort of sci-fi culture also and how oh, that 100%. plays into how we think about our current world. Oh, that's 100%. I've, I've always been the hugest believer of the science fiction at some points becomes science fact, right? Somebody thinks of, you know, I, I, I think back to when I was a kid, you know, and I'm like watching Star Wars or Star Wars, Star Trek, the next generation, because my mom's been a big Star Trek fan. And, you know, you see all these buttons and you see all these things and then you get, you know, now here it is in, in 2021 and you're like, wow, that's really cool. Wait a minute. They actually made that? thing that I saw on the sci-fi channel back in the day, you know, and, and you, you see, you see people literally making actual lightsabers. You know, if you go online, you can live someone, some guy took a, t a tungsten rod and turned it into a lightsaber. They cut through a car, you know, and oh yeah, and I'm just like, and, and it's not as, you know, if it's not as cool as like what you would see in star Wars, but the fact that the guy has a backpack with a glowing rod on it, that can cut a car in half, you know, goes to tell you, you know, a lot about how, um, the, the, the visualized thinking that happens within humanity and things that come out in movies and film and, and the script writing that's done ends up being something that you know may drive an idea for an inventor later on because they were you know they were inspired by a particular you know scene in a film or something like that um, and it does it does make you wonder how many uh, how many really cool inventions uh, came from stuff like that right yeah of course <laughs> so let's talk about um, you know map collective and kind of you know how you guys do what you do and and you know, obviously, I understand the purpose behind it, right? The purpose is to visualize some of the components that are happening globally. So that way, some people can actually understand. Because it's one thing for, you know, people to just have, you know, long drawn out conversations. Or in some cases, I know that people who are very 
uh, you know, they're very determined to help with climate issues, um, you know, or trying to get information across to people who don't maybe understand the severity of the climate crisis that's happening in, in the world. And you have some people that just don't believe that it is. You have some people that say, you know, climate change is normal, um, right, with some of the different things. I can tell you right now, I live in Phoenix, Arizona, and it is 115 degrees outside right now. My mom, who, who who's, who's an avid gardener has been keeping track of temperatures high and low and humidity levels since the 1980s and uh, we were looking at her little log the other day and we were so she's got this set of data for her particular area right and so we started looking at all of the data on there and sure enough it started in the year 2002 and year over year over year over year since 2002 incrementally we've seen a one to two degree increase in average high temperatures in Phoenix which is already like an arid desert and it's already really hot um, and so if you think about what's happening here in in our particular area but how do you showcase that to somebody because you know someone someone comes here they say they you know like I've lived here my whole life I don't really see much of a change because I'm so acclimated to it right but somebody who comes and visits they're like oh my god dude this is like an oven here how do you even live here kind of thing um, and so it's really hard to um, for me as a as a local person to visualize that information right obviously i went through the data and the data is the data and you can't dispute the data right um but how do you showcase that to other people who may not understand how bad a carbon footprint is or uh you know some of those things right yeah and that's why i think it's really important when you think about showcasing the carbon footprint to think about the planetary boundaries because you actually are looking at how much carbon can the planet contain, or how much can it uh, can it contain in the different uh, spheres of uh, like in, for example, when we're looking at the carbon footprint, then you really it doesn't make much sense when you show somebody like for example my own personal carbon footprint or even the county's carbon footprint, the government, the region's carbon footprint is X Y Z number because it's just a number to people that doesn't really mean anything, especially if it's not zeroed out. Uh, and so what we do is we look at the historical. Uh, carbon data of a place since it was established. So we work with businesses, we do uh, carbon mapping for individuals, uh, we have different base, basically type of profiles. So you can do basically a business profile, you can create a business profile, you can create an individual profile, or you can create a uh, you can create a uh, government profile. And so we, we work with governments as well, and so for an area, area like Phoenix, basically we would be looking at what does the carbon footprint look like in this area, and how can we look at the historical returns of this region? How, how can we look at uh, basically how this has evolved over time? And we'll put that on the profile of this country or of this region of whatever area we're looking at. And then we'll also project out into the future and we look at the carbon deficit. So we're not only zeroing out uh, or, or getting to net zero, Oh, apologies for that. We're not. We're not only getting life to net happens. Zero. Life happens. Keep it rolling. Keep it yeah. rolling. <laughs> we're not only getting to net zero, but we're also uh, looking at the carbon debt. So we're we're looking at basically uh, the U.S. has a carbon deficit of about 555 gigatons, and what that means is that we've overshot what we should have been using uh, pre-industrial revolution. So the U.S. is the largest has the largest overshoot, and it's far outstripping the next closest. Uh, country, which is the Russian Federation, at about one thirteen gigatons. Even bigger than okay. even more than China. Yeah, it's far outstripping it because we're accounting wow. for really uh, the carbon deficit pre-industrial revolution, everything, and so I think that's actually people's biggest question. Even bigger than China, mm. yeah. So I think well, I, uh, could, I could I could see why too because if you go back to the beginning of the industrial revolution, you're taking all of that into account, right? Um, like China didn't become industrialized as early as the United States did, so it had, we had like a, lar a larger runway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so when then basically we're taking accountability for that, we're taking responsibility for that. And we're saying that we're going to also look at who's profiting off of the current GDP. And then we're we're going to be able to divide out that accountability so that we can really undo the carbon deficit by around 2050. So not only are we shooting for a net zero by 2030, we're also shooting for undoing that carbon deficit by 2050. And that's part of the, the goal and the plan and the timeline that we put these companies that go through our carbon plan certification uh, and carbon plan program. You know, so speaking kind of real world, right? Because I think a lot of people don't quite understand. Like, let me let me give you an example. So, like, I drive a car, right? It's powered by gasoline. I don't have one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to go buy a Tesla, right? Um, 
I want to pause for just a second and reach out to all the digital leaders out there. How would it feel to not only know what your customer is experiencing, but how many others are experiencing this also? I think it's about time that we put our customers at the center of our decisions and get ahead with real-time insights way before a code freeze. It may be beach weather outside, but for retailers, the holiday season has already started. 2021 holiday e-commerce sales are expected to exceed the 2020 benchmarks. Is your company prepared to capture every customer's revenue opportunity? With Quantum Metric, you can be. Their unique approach to the digital customer experience helps today's top retailers and e-commerce brands quickly identify and prioritize the big and small revenue opportunities that keep customers engaged and coming back. Stay off the naughty list with Santa this holiday season and reduce that customer friction, increasing conversions. You all know we got to have those conversions. And at the same time, personalizing the shopping experience. You guys want a sneak peek? Visit us at quantummetrics.com slash pod offer and see if you can qualify to receive our 12 days of insights offer with code frequency. This gives you a 12 day access to the cloud platform coupled with a bespoke insight report that will help you identify where customers are struggling or engaging in your digital product. Some restrictions apply. I want to make sure you guys check it out. 12 days of insights. Go get a sneak peek. Visit quantummetrics.com slash pod offer. I think ultimately over time, electric cars will become more uh, affordable for people to buy. Um, you know, I like the idea also of electric autonomous vehicles and, you know, those types of things as well. I will be, will be helpful for, for, for carbon stuff. But if you, if you, if you take a look at, you know, the carbon footprint of the United States, like what is, what part of the in- industry or what, industries are causing like the highest amount of carbon right to be emitted into our into into the atmosphere you know because i think there's a common misconception on oh it's this or it's that and and i don't think anybody's really put a a a thumbprint on hey you know the the biggest you know uh what do i want to call the biggest offenders of uh, of carbon output are you know these industries right i mean I, i know there's a lot of cars out there but are cars really that responsible for the carbon or is it more of the um you know industries that are manufacturing and making products or you know cows and methane gas right i mean that's a great question we do uh the the group that has done the the best breakdown of this i would say is drawdown and that's a great reference to look at uh what are the top offenders and they actually list out uh what uh like number one what is the biggest use uh and so that is a great way to look at it just from a contextual point of view. But what we do is also we, we pair all of these different organizations together onto one map. And so then we're looking at that composition. Uh, what is banking using actually, you know, what is, uh, yeah. and, and in the banking industry, then we look at the direct emissions. Uh, we look at the indirect emissions basically of like keeping the lights on. Uh, if they use any fuels on site, banking doesn't really use fuels on site in the way that like, agriculture might or in the, in the way that different organizations like uh, who are burning propane on site might. Mm-hmm. But they do have what is called scope three emissions. So scope three emissions are basically what is uh, the emissions that you have through partnerships. And that's what really everyone is entangled with. Uh, if a bank is giving out a loan to different organizations that are really carbon intensive, then they're actually responsible for some of those emissions because they share in that carbon emission. They share in the responsibility and accountability for that. So that's what's really creating this complex system that uh, ends up being very impossible for somebody to entangle when they're just thinking about their own day-to-day life. Yeah. But the way to break that down for individuals is that uh, being an organization that's looking at the contextualization of individuals versus businesses versus governments, we say, okay, you know, an individual is really responsible for about 20% of their footprint. The rest of that footprint is actually controlled by the governments and businesses that they participate in. And so it's it's really part of that larger system that they are involved in. So you know, just to contextualize this for you know uh, a non a non a non climate expert, right? <laughs> you want, 
any, you want to contextualize digital audio or anything like that, I got your back. But I, I'm not that versed in the whole climate thing. But so when I think about myself and like my own carbon footprint, right? I drive a car, you know, so there's like, you know, carbon from that. I, I purchase electricity from the, you know, from the grid. So however they're making that electricity provides some kind of a carbon footprint, whether it be, you know, coal or gas or, you know, I don't know, solar is pretty, pretty clean, right? There's, is there, is there a carbon footprint? footprint from solar power so the carbon footprint from solar power is probably going to be uh the funding for it (laughs) the funding for it (laughs) (laughs) well it's more about like the the production of the solar panels themselves and that's a, a big concern so i mean with blockchain also it's really interesting because you're looking at a huge carbon footprint for the way that blockchain actually operates you're you're uh looking at the huge usage of energy and so when we're thinking about blockchain as a potential way to be accounting for carbon or be looking at carbon ledgers in order to create this record system of accounting for carbon in this larger planetary boundaries context, then we actually have to be really conscious of, okay, but what kind of energy are we using in order to fund that? What kind of energy are we using in order to uh, really maintain that and, and uh, is that sustainable itself? So so what, so what you have to do is you have to take all of the computing power that's running the blockchain and set that on top of something that's geothermal so that way you're not using any carbon at all to create electricity so then you can track all of the carbon stuff with something that's carbon neutral. Exactly. <laughs> you got it. And that's, that's the main solution right now. No, that's funny because I've thought about that just with like cryptocurrencies and thinking about blockchain and the amount of, you know, pure processing power that's necessary to, you know, do the computations for Bitcoin, for example, which are, you know, highly uh, uh, processor intensive with uh, graphics yeah. cards and all that kind of stuff. And in my main, I'm like, well. Well, if you could go to a cold place that has geothermal power like Iceland or, you know, Greenland or something like that and make a data center there, then, you know, maybe you might be able to have something really cool. Uh, And that's funny because, you know, here living in Phoenix and I'm hearing about uh, Google, Facebook um, and some other private entity that I can't find who the actual uh, the funding is behind it, but they're building like these huge data centers here in in the in the in the, uh, you know Maricopa County area, and I'm like, man, that's gonna you know be a huge draw on you know our resources here when you're talking about a facility that needs you know seven million gallons of water a day to cool its processors or, you know, X amount of gigawatts of electricity um, to be able to maintain. And you start thinking about that, you know, it really starts to become pretty intensive from a carbon perspective because there's a lot of energy being used. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. But I think that there's what's what's really interesting is like what you're talking about, where we use the landscape then in really innovative ways. And I think that that's really what we're moving towards in terms of when we think about the whole of earth as the system that it's not unlimited in certain ways you know we do have these feedback loops that we have to actually pay attention to uh but there are so many resources that we haven't really tapped into in creative ways or in alternative ways and i think when you look at how i i believe there's a volcano that people are also thinking about using uh somewhere in uh central south america for blockchain as well for uh the energy source that might be geothermal and so when you're looking at all those different really innovative opportunities then really there's a world of possibilities and there there are much more uh there are many more ways to actually flourish and grow these companies these governments uh just the the day-to-day lives that we lead that really aren't going to be hindering our future lives or our, our kids lives yeah, and I think that's really the main the main thing is you know leaving. It's like it's like when you go camping, right? You you go to your campsite and you know you're you're, you're there. And you know I always I always have taught my family that you know the most important thing about camping is is not just being there and enjoying people's company, but at the same time, taking just a moment to leave this campground or this camping area nicer than you left it. You know, if, if, if you get there and you see some garbage on the ground that wasn't yours, you know, take two seconds and clean it up, you know, take a couple of seconds to, you know, do those kind of things. So that's kind of, you know, kind of the mentality, right. When you're thinking about, uh, you know, keeping, keeping the earth as a sustainable component for humanity is, you know, wanting to leave it better than you found 
around it. So that way, you know, your children have something that's sustainable for their children, right? Because if we don't get a handle on, you know, some of this stuff, there's going to be some pretty bad implications, you know, and, you know, we don't have the technology to like fly to Mars and start a colony, which is probably way off. And, you know, so. The irony of it, you know, is that we will will need a closed loop system or circular economy system in order to really sustain any life on a place like Mars. And if we, I mean, if we're living in a completely inhabitable Earth, we're going to need a closed loop system here too. So anything you do in another space, in another place, you know, it's not like you're going to have resources really coming from Mars itself. And so I think it's pretty funny because it's like if we turn Earth into a Mars, you know, like it's just that it is a really habitable place right now. And that's why we've grown and flourished here. But if we turn it into it, then, I mean, all the systems we're creating for sustainability and the ways that we're affecting the earth, you know, we like in a place like Phoenix, where you have just scorching land and scorching temperatures, then I think it's interesting because, you know, that is that is almost (laughs) like a Mars itself. You know, you do have to create these closed loop systems. Uh, Ideally, we should be building buried houses there. We should be building really interesting new forms of agriculture there. And so. I think that like we can still think about these as opportunities for uh, places for sustainable communities and places for uh, uh, mapping the carbon, but we need to manage those systems. And that's really what Map Collective does is is manage those systems and the data around them. You know, that's interesting that you said in-ground houses. I literally had a dream the other day that I bought a piece of land, right? And I built my house inside the mountain. Wow. Right? Yeah. And I just, I, I woke up and I was like, oh, that was like, and I totally remembered the dream because sometimes, you know, you don't remember the dreams all the time when you have them. I woke up and I was like all excited. And I'm like, I need to go, I need to go buy a piece of land so I can build a house in the mountain. Who? I don't even, I, I wasn't even thinking sustainability. I was just like, that is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> it, take, taking it back to sci-fi or taking it back to, I guess, uh, these really epic journeys. And you can remember the, all the dwarves or, or, or I forget what they are, but in uh, Lord of the Rings that built their house inside of the mountain. And that, that's actually yeah, very they, they, sustainable. Yeah, they built them inside the Shire. <laughs> yeah. That's, oh yeah, that's, those are buried houses as well, a great model. Yeah, no, that's 100%. And I think too, when you think about, um, you know, even older construction methods, right? Uh, you know, if you, you, you look at, uh, let's say South America, for example, and how, uh, you know, indigenous tribes used to build, you know, all of their structures there, right? Everything came from the land, you know, they they, they, made, they were able to make mortar and, and, and all that kind of stuff out of mud, and they were able to make their own bricks, and all of that stuff was all done by hand. There was like no carbon footprint for creating all of that. And I think that there's the opportunity, like you said, to, to to kind of maybe take a step back just a little bit and look at nature's uncanny ability to provide humanity with everything that we need because that's it has been for a long time you know there there's been you know lots of times pre in, in uh, industrial revolution pre any of that kind of stuff where you know um, humanity was doing pretty good we were doing just fine uh, and and you know having technologies and industry come away I think were you know was was helpful for some certain areas you know like you know, healthcare and 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 medicine and some of those kind of things but if you really think about it there's some of the stuff that you know that we have today that some of it's probably unnecessary like Americans especially right have have this have this tenacity for stuff right and when you think about that tenacity for stuff that tenacity for stuff just drives more carbon more you know more industry more output and the more output that you have then the more you continue to have this cycle um and so i think it also starts with you know you as a person and you know what is each person doing on their own to make sure that they're not um you know being overtly uh what's the word i I don't want to say selfish but that's kind of the word i want to use like because if you're if you're just constantly you know grabbing and taking and doing all of that then you are kind of being selfish and not really thinking about uh you know some of the stuff that's going on and then and then you think about like what's been happening the last 18 months with the whole pandemic right which was i thought was really cool i saw a map and it was probably, I want to say June of 2020. Um, and it showed um, not carbon, but like emissions, right? Um, you know, smog around certain metropolitan areas. 
And, you know, like you looked over certain areas that were very heavily industrialized and the smog output that they had normally had when you compared it to Google Maps from like five years before was completely different because everything stopped for just a short time. You know what I mean? And you had you had like a short time where I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. I've never been able to actually see this because there's always too much smog in the way when I look at the Google Maps. Uh, but it's kind of like the the pandemic, I think, has been helpful. You know, like my wife is now working from home. She doesn't have to go to work anymore. She, they're just like work from home. So she has a car that just sits there. You know what I mean? She gets like, uh, I don't know, seven months to the gallon or something like that. <laughs> Um, and then, but I'm still driving back and forth every day because I have to commute to the studio and, you know, so that's what's necessary for me. So her carbon footprint has greatly been reduced, but maybe not because now we're using more electricity at home to maintain the air conditioning because she's home all day. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think with the pandemic, a lot of people were thinking that that's kind of a model of the solutions that we need to have. But at the same time, like, it's not only about reduce, it's also about Re restructuring these systems you know a lot of it is like we're looking at for example we have a supply chains map as well so we have our, our global carbon map and we also have our supply chains map and supply chains is a huge part of it because when we think about supply chains the solution is really to be thinking about the circular economy where do these things originate and where do they end up and eventually eliminating things like landfills eliminating the need for anything like that so we are taking uh uh, sort of that mentality that you mentioned of leave no trace behind but at the same time it it's not about like stopping the flow of materiality it's also uh, accounting for anything you are using materially but you uh, like I think a lot of people get scared of like oh no I'm not going to be able to have any other things I, I want or need I'm not going to be able to enjoy myself in this like rigid sustainable world but I don't see it that way at all I actually see it as another way of providing much more abundance. Yeah, no, and I can totally understand what you mean too. And you know, when you when you think about supply chain, right? Especially, you know, I'll I'm I'm gonna use I'm gonna use some seafood as an example, right? Um, there's a lot of seafood that gets sourced from like the South China Sea, you know, from lots of different places that are really far away from the United States. If you walk into the grocery store and you look at some of the uh, you know products that are in there, it'll be like you know, like a name brand product that, you know, and it'll be like, you know, uh, uh, canned in Malaysia, you know what I mean? And I'm, in, and I'm like, so that, that thing traveled all the way from Malaysia over to the United States. And so, you know, it goes on this big giant cargo ship that's, you know, burning how, you know, however many thousands of gallons of diesel fuel, you know, as it travels all the way across the ocean in order to get here. And it's like, well, couldn't we just source that like off the coast of California or like, you know, somewhere where there's no, not, not necessary for the supply chain to be so long, you know, right. If you can, if you can shorten the supply chain, right. To make it more circular, like you're talking about, then that inherently would reduce carbon footprint by a lot. And we have become super reliant on uh, globalized supply chains. And so that's sort of built into our system. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the foods we eat too, it's, it's unless you create this very intricate greenhouse that's gonna create a lot of uh, extra expense on those products, then you're also looking at shipping a bunch of those from tropical areas. Yeah, no, I want to, you know, when I'm, when I'm at the grocery store and I'm looking at, you know, mangoes and different fruits and different things. And, um, you know, every once in a while, when you're at the produce section at the grocery store, you can see the guy and he's like stocking it and you can see the box and it tells you like where the produce comes from. And you're looking at, you know, here in Arizona, we get a lot of produce for Mexico and Central America, right? A, a ton that comes from here. Um, now, some things I think that people can do to kind of thwart some of that stuff. I mean, if, if I don't go to my grocery store and I buy their produce, you know, other people are, are still going to go buy the produce, but I can do my small part and I can support my local community because we have a farm that's like, you know, two miles from our house and I can just go to that farm and I can go at certain times of the year and I could get peaches and I can get green beans and carrots and it's all grown right there on their farm. And yeah, does it cost a little bit more money? It sure does cost a little bit more money, but I know two different things. Number one, it was grown by a local farmer completely organically, and I know that it's going to be healthy for my family, and I know that I'm helping my own community by doing so, right? And so I think, you know, when you when you get rid of, like what you said, a, a globalized uh, supply chain and you get to something more natural like that, you know, I, I always felt the same way with, you know, like people that have, like, 
grass in their front yard. You know, I'm like, why do you have grass in your front yard? You could turn your whole front yard into a garden. You could probably feed the whole neighborhood. <laughs> well, I think the thing is, uh, a lot of people also, um, a, a lot of people are also overwhelmed by trying to make all those choices themselves, which is why we try to do it from the business side. And we also encourage a larger grocery store that will be supplying many more people, you know, to actually become transparent, to, to be highlighting what those supply chains are. And that's sort of where we come in and we ask that to be the norm of bigger business as well, because not mm -hmm. everyone has the time also to go out and seek out those great options that you are talking about, even yeah, though that's, that's true. That's a great things. It still makes it more difficult for a person who is living a hectic life or mm -hmm. is caught up in different things. Yeah. But if that big box store was more focused on like, okay, let, what, what, um, uh, what what do I have that's available to me in this current region that I could you know I could I could leverage in my you know my Fry's grocery store my Kroger or whatever your you know wherever you live in in the United States whatever kind of grocery store you go to but you know sixty percent of those are Krogers so <laughs> uh, but what if Kroger was like doing a better job of let's say sourcing their vegetables from local local people like that little farm. Yeah, and that's that's a big move in agriculture in uh, the food industry in general, uh, and that is something that then a carbon plan and and a supply chain plan basically encourages because it will also highlight what you are doing on that front, and then it will also make sure that you are making choices that are much more uh, energy intense, uh, le less energy intensive, uh, as well as also support the social aspects of your supply chain, support these governance aspects of your supply chain. So how do you deal with, you know, the, the, the rise in, you know, people who are looking for homes? I'll give you an example. So I live in a town, it's called Levine. It's an offshoot of Phoenix. When we first moved in, probably 80% of Levine was all agriculture, cotton, nuts, uh, cattle, you know, uh, dairy farms, you know, all, you name it, right? Corn, um, all kinds of stuff like the, the peach orchard at the other farm that has literally 850 peach trees, <laughs> just a, a, an enormous amount of peaches. Um, but then as we started to, you know, look at the growth and expansion of, um, you know, urban communities, all of a sudden all this great farmland that's producing great stuff is now ticky tacky houses for people to move into because here in Phoenix, we have a housing shortage. And so every time you have a housing shortage and you end up having a loss of agricultural areas due to those agricultural areas giving up that land to the developers to build houses versus, you know, growing agriculture, um, simply because for the person who's doing the farming or doing the work on that piece of land or agriculture, um, it becomes more lucrative for them to sell that piece of land than it does for them to continue to work that piece of land to generate, you know, different ki kinds of crops. I, and, I, and I see that as a huge issue nationwide, especially as you start to see population increases and the need for more housing. And how do you ensure that, um, you know, that, 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 you know, that land is available. I'll give you a perfect example. My uncle lives in Southern California and he lives right near what one of, which is one of the largest, uh, Lando lakes, um, facilities who makes butter. Right. And so I was there last summer and we were taking a kind of a tour around. And I mean, these are huge places, four, five, six thousand acre, you know, farms. And none of them were operating. And I asked my uncle, I'm just like, why is none of these operating? And they're like, they can't get any water. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, so now you have all these facilities that are perfectly there to be able to help and, and sustain that, um, you know, that, that area. And not only from a sustainability component, but like just, you know, people having jobs in the community too. Like, you know, that farm not being there, you know, caused an economic impact to the area as well. And so how do you deal with, you know, that those aspects in that area of making sure that agriculture is available um, in, in the, you know, in the localized areas so you can shorten the supply chain? Yeah, great question. Um, actually, in, in areas in Arizona, too, part of it is that there's just such a hot, hot real estate market that it ends up being that <laughs> so, so much of the land is, is bought up so quickly before anything can be done. Uh, but one of those things I would say is, is that it's... Uh, I mean, first of all, we should point out that agriculture is not always 
very good for the land. And so it's good to also have um, more sustainable agriculture, such as holistic managed agriculture or such as uh, different agroforestry setups or permaculture setups. So when we're looking at that, we're looking at the carbon footprint of those agricultural plots as well, yeah. because just because agriculture doesn't mean it's more sustainable. Second of all, when we're looking at the county level or the government level, a lot of this can be solved through zoning. A lot of this can be solved through also looking at uh, the activism of citizens and how people are activated within the community. So you're looking at sort of a joint effort between the uh, the citizens and the government. And you're also looking at business being perhaps a little regulated and how they come in as well for that by this government initiative. So you want conservation uh, mm -hmm. districts you want uh, or you want conservation integrated in that land plan. And you also want agriculture integrated into the land management plan. And then you want development that ideally is making use of things like solar when you have a place like Arizona where there's such great sun, solar like is off the charts. When people start producing solar farms and they start putting rooftop solar, it's producing more than they even need. So I think that it's really interesting when you look at specific regions, specific climates, what they're good for. Uh, and then you also don't just rule out certain areas uh, that have become really hot or that have become really, uh, really overdeveloped in uh, unsustainable ways because there are ways to adapt the city also after the fact. Yeah, because that's one of the things for me living in the desert. I'm like, water is a finite resource for us here. And, yeah. you know, you have, a, a, you know, I don't want to say a mass exodus, but you have a lot of people that are coming from other states that are coming here to Phoenix. And I mean, we're talking, my, my friend who lives across the street, who I've known for about 15 years, he does construction and he builds house like the, you know, the dirt pad that you build a house on. And he's working six days a week, 10 hours a day. And he has been for the last year and a half. You know, and like, it's just that that's just how crazy the market is for building homes. And then I just think about like, well, where are we going to get all the water for people to drink to sustain all of this stuff? You know, that's a great point. yeah. Yeah. And uh, part of that actually can be solved with different land management practices, because there are ways to actually undesertify an area that's partially desertified when it's really just sand and nothing else. Then it's, mm -hmm. it's really difficult. But when you do have a uh, small shrubby plants, for example, you can do farmer managed natural regeneration uh, and you can really create this canopy out of those small shrubby trees that then allows for a different uh, ground cover to grow that allows for different mm -hmm. uh, mid-sized plants to grow and then eventually you regenerate the land to this point where you do have all these different elements that are bringing back water that are attracting water because there's humidity held in that foliage. No, that's really interesting that you say that because when I was younger growing up here, there was less, um, you know, we have this, we have this Tempe town lake that dams up the salt river. Right. And, um, I remember when I was younger, that dam didn't exist. And so there was a lot more water that flowed, you know, downstream through the salt river. And there's even a spot. I, and I, I live just off the salt river. Like literally I could walk to the bridge that goes to the salt river. But one of the cool things is, you know, you look at it and you see where some of the water is and where it's flowing and you get to see what the natural landscape of the Phoenix Valley was before anybody got here and i'm talking it is the coolest thing there's like reeds growing and all these birds and stuff that you never would see you know like when you just go you know in the desert you don't see that but in this little tiny area where water is still flowing from the salt river i mean it's not a very large area but you know uh a a a, a, a stream of water that's only like two feet wide and four feet deep right has made an area of four acres look like you know marshland because of the water that's been there and it's just like just really cool and so it's very spotty because they don't let water out all the time but just to mm -hmm. see the difference in the way the land is versus how it was when the water was free flowing you know very similar to you know like when the colorado river used to actually flow to the ocean um you know there's huge swaths of their spots in mexico that are just arid desert now because that water doesn't make it there um and, yeah. and i think i think it was in 2014 they did for the first time they let water go all the way through and let it run for probably six months and everything started coming back and birds and shrubs and everything were starting to come back and it was just really interesting to see how quickly the land was revitalized just by having the water present mm -hmm. yeah it's a pretty dramatic change um and dams are definitely a controversial thing when you're when you're talking climate change yeah 100 percent. i see it every day i live 
I live in the Colorado River Basin. You know, you look at Lake Powell and, you know, they're talking about releasing water from like Wyoming and some places up in Montana in order to push water down that the Colorado River Basin because it's starting to dry up. And it's definitely an issue for sure. Something that I'm, I'm keenly watching. I read the news about it all the time. You know, I, I want to shift gears just really quickly and talk about something sustainable um, when it comes to agriculture, because I've always just had this uh, this fascination with different types of uh, agricultural methodologies when it comes to, you know, things like aquaponics and hydroponics and those types of things. Um, have you guys done analysis on carbon footprints for something that would be like, let's say, um, a warehouse that's the size of an Amazon warehouse that is strictly for, um, you know, like, like I'll use aquaponics as an example, only because the water can be reused over and over and over and over again. Um, have you guys looked at some things like that and how do those compare to, you know, like plots of land and the, those carbon footprints? Yeah. I mean, so one thing that might be similar here is uh, we actually were working with a company that is a public cannabis company and they house these large plant growing operations, right? And they have huge turnaround. Yeah, and, and so it'll be it'll be pretty crazy when you look at, okay, there's like turnaround like three, four times a year, and then you are replacing all that soil, you're uh, putting in water, you're uh, putting in different uh, fertilizers perhaps, and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they also use uh, for, they also use propane on site, and so when we're thinking about, okay, how does that actually uh, affect the scope one emissions, scope two emissions, then that's, that's totally different beast than looking at a farm and looking at the plot of land that is open air and there you're looking at soil quality you're look i mean you're looking at soil quality when you're looking at the in-house operation as well but it's very different it's more about how you source it what's your supply chain for it how do you how do you dispose of the so-called waste soil uh and then like what are you doing with that afterwards? don't use soil really that's my answer <laughs> <laughs> well actually if you use something else it's probably even more carbon intensive so it's it's probably much better to use soil uh, and well, so so, so I, I'll ask a question about that. So there's um, there's there's these things called geolite pellets that are made out of clay, right? Um, and those are completely reusable substrate medium for any plant. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we haven't looked into them, but I I'm sure like we could do a carbon analysis of it, and we could also figure out, okay, is this actually doing them a favor to be using this? Uh, how is it affecting the transportation and all? Uh, as a person interested in farming myself, I, I always tend towards soil just because I like, uh, I, I think that it's also, um, it's, it, it does change like just the, the nature of farming to, to be more connected with uh, permaculture oh. agriculture when you're, when you're <laughs> Tar, I'm going to tell you right now, you should see my backyard, right? I have, uh, I, I, my, my wife loves to make salsa. And so we have a salsa garden and my wife is like, all of my salsa vegetables have to be grown in organic soil. And I'm like, okay, okay, fine. Right. And so then I also built, I also built like, um, you know what an NFT system is? Uh, it's like a flowing water through a pipe that goes to a reservoir and then gets pushed back to the top. Very cool. So I have one of those in my backyard. I can't grow it right now. I can only grow it. I can only get one season with that because it's too hot. You have to do it at a specific time because hot water kills plants real quite, real fast. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'll, I'll start using that like in November, right? And I'll be I'll be able to farm all the way through the wintertime, um, you know, with vegetables and stuff like that. But, you know, I look at those things too as like, you know, if, and my water is reused, I don't, I, all I have to do is just top the water off and it's only because of uh, evaporation, right? That I have to, you know, add more water. But, you know, I, I think of those types of things as being extremely sustainable components, because even if you look at growing in soil, like I'll give you an example, it takes like 23 gallons of water to grow one head of cabbage in the ground. Right. Where if you were to switch that over to some type of a hydroponic setup or whatever, you might be able to grow, you know, 15 heads of cabbage for the same 23 gallons of water. You know, and so yeah, I think it's pretty interesting when you talk about really these larger systems when you are uh, incorporating all these technologies. And that's why we we turn to also a lot of these uh, older methods for for doing things. But we combine them uh, with the modern knowledge of that's all awesome. these technologies and materialities that we we've, we've also developed. So. I definitely am not saying that we should be limited by that. I just think that there is a there is a healthy combination when you're thinking about uh, those indigenous methods you were also, for mm -hmm. example, uh, mentioning earlier, and then how we combine them with different technologies that have been developed through 
scientific methods today. Oh yeah, you know, one of the coolest things that I'm totally into right now, and uh, my, my family's from Idaho, so um, I have family that grows potatoes, right? Uh, and I have one I have one uncle who's, he's getting ready to retire, and he's like, I'm doing it all the old way, and I'm gonna go dig with my shovel, and you know, drive my big giant tractors, and then I have a cousin, and um, he works for Microsoft, <laughs> and he works for the Microsoft Agricultural AI Division, and they go out to the fields and they put these little sensors in the soil, right? And the sensors, all kinds of data, right? They'll give you, you know, the, the pH levels of the soil. They'll give you, you know, saturations of, you know, uh, different metals and all kinds of different stuff. And so then it tells them which parts of the field need to be watered and how often so they're able to save more water. Right. And so I'm, I'm looking at some of those technologies, which I think are really cool, because what happens is, you know, the, the AI does all the calculations for the farmer, you know, allowing the farmer to spend more time on what the farmer is good at and, and, and less time of, you know, moving water hoses. <laughs> uh, so those are some of the cool, I think what you talked, where you're just talking about kind of like hybrid components where you're looking at indigenous soil growth, but leveraging, you know, technology in a manner to make it more sustainable um, and then use less water to grow more, you know? And so, yeah, so I think that there's some really cool up and coming technologies that'll be um, more, more widely used. It, it also makes sense to use something like substrate, but in when you're talking about land, like when you're, we're, we're talking about the retention of water, bringing back water to lands, and all, you really need to be building soil structure. So there's there's uh, different scenarios for for each as well. One hundred percent. Tara, thank you so much for joining us today on Finding Your Frequency. I just looked at the time and we've gone for almost an hour and uh, I got I to gotta make sure I can put my, uh, my other production elements in. So uh, t- <laughs> tell people where they can find out more about you and uh, Map Collective. So Map Collective, you can find us on map-collective.com and also uh, can reach out to me through LinkedIn or through my uh just through different mechanisms. Uh, I, I have a calendar, Calendly link I can also send you if you people wanna take a call. Uh, I'm happy to also just give more information on the certifications that we go through, how we go through our process, talk people through that. But it was really a pleasure uh, being on the show and, and talking to you today. Yeah, thank you so much, we appreciate you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening into this episode of Finding a Frequency as we talk a little bit about blockchain innovation around the MAP Collective with our special guest, Tara Gupta. I want to thank her for joining us on the show. Make sure you guys go check out map-collective.com. See what these guys are doing. Um, Really cool information. And, you know, make sure that uh, you're thinking about your carbon footprint and where you're working through your day. All right. I'm even mad at myself right now because I'm drinking out of a plastic bottle of water because when I left my house this morning, guess what I did? I left my dang water bottle on the kitchen table. And so I was forced to use plastic water bottles and I just feel bad about it. So anyways, those are just some of the things that people can do, I think, to, you know, kind of take a look at what they're doing. You know, make sure you're out there recycling, reusing and, you know, doing the best you can to keep yourself neutral. And while you're at it, make sure when you're listening to the show, you give us a five star review because we're five star human beings and four stars just don't matter. Thank you so much for tuning in. You guys have a great one. We'll talk to you on the next episode of Finding Your Frequency.